Live from our man caves in Virginia Beach, this is MLS Gone Wild, where Blem and Mike D bring you the latest news, rumors, analytics, predictions, and all things MLS and American soccer. Let's get it going, Blem. Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 7 of MLS Gone Wild. This is your host, Blem. Listeners, welcome back for another episode. This is Mike D. On this week's episode of MLS Gone Wild, we will be discussing the U.S. Youth National Team failing to qualify for the Olympics and a broad preview of the upcoming MLS season with Brooke Hatton FC manager, Hummus Fanatic, and co-host of the Extra Time MLS podcast, David Goss. David, welcome to MLS Gone Wild. Wow, did not expect that intro coming, so <laughs> I'm reeling a little bit. I actually have to be honest. Uh, my Brook Hatton team restarted. That's my men's league team. We've got great branding because everyone who's ever played for the team either works for Nike or Adidas in promotion and branding. So we've got great stuff. And I specifically said, I don't want to run this anymore. So I may not be manager anymore. Although I said that, and then I'm still the one finding players. So who knows? Yeah, I had to hit up Andrew Weeby to get some insight on who nice. David Goss really was. So thank you to Andrew Weeby for hitting us back <laughs> up in the Twitter DMs. But Dave, how are you doing tonight, man? I'm good. Uh, I, we talked about doing this show a few weeks ago, and now I'm in the, like, I'm ready for the season to start. I'm trying to get preseason streams, even though I'm not in the 90-mile radius of anywhere. I'm, like, jonesing for lineups. So I'm very excited for tonight, because I think this, this, this is the best time of the year. Like, everyone could be MLS Cup champions. And we're going to talk a bunch about MLS, and that's what I love to do. Absolutely. So for our listeners that want to know more about you outside of your hummus addiction and your coverage of the MLS, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I'm a Long Island kid originally. I uh, lived in New York most of my life. And then right after high school left and went and lived overseas for a year or so and then went to Boston for college. Um, I didn't grow up in a family that loved soccer, but I started playing around 12, 13, which I guess is late for people and just like fell in love with it. I love history and cultures and languages and all that stuff not that I can speak any um and so soccer kind of like fit perfectly into that and so I just it became everything for me um and so I've been passionate about it my whole life and otherwise I like to eat random foods that's a big part of what I do or drink random things those are other big things that I do uh, and I've been in New York City the last whew, been a while it's the greatest city in the world so it's hard to leave um, and I love saying that to people because you can disagree, but you can't dismiss it. And for people that want to disagree, it makes them so angry when you say it. So I'm quick to drop a, you know, greatest city of all time. There's definitely accuracy in that for sure. <laughs> yeah. All right. All goss, no breaks. Mike D, let's get right into it. <laughs> all right, David. So in one of the Extra Time podcasts earlier this year, Andrew Weeby actually called us and I quote, a competing podcast. So, so first of all, I'd like to say thanks to Andrew Weeby for that extreme compliment, but I'd say it's probably a little bit of a reach. Anyways, as an amateur MLS podcast, we have aspirations to make a name for ourselves in this business and we all have to start somewhere. So David, walk us through your process of how you got into working with the MLS and extra time and what the experience has been like for you so far. Yeah. So, um, so as I said, I fell in love with soccer and I knew I wanted to work in it. Um, eventually. And I fell in love with MLS pretty quickly. Uh, I think it came national team first for me, probably around 2003, 2004. So sort of after the World Cup, but not because of the World Cup. Uh, and then from that, it was, oh, I could watch these guys more often. 
obviously on Long Island. So I'd go to uh, Giant Stadium for Metro Stars games at the time. The only one there. But if they scored after the 75th minute, you got a full Snickers. Full, not, the, not the baby one, full one. So that really draws you in. That really gets it going. <laughs> uh, so I fell in love with MLS and just followed it and cared about it. And I care about the sport in this country and I cared about this league. And so in college, I, um, I broadcast college soccer at my school, Northeastern, up in Boston. Go, go Huskies, go Dogs. Not, we don't have much school pride, but that's the thing you can say anyway. Uh, and I worked actually for the Revs as like a student ambassador, handing out tickets and trying to get college kids to come, whatever I could do. And I was a fan of Extra Time Radio. Uh, so I listened to the show and I listened to, at the time it was Greg and Simon and Nick and we be on as well at times. And at one point, Nick said, uh, we're looking for an intern. So email in, I emailed immediately. It was one of 7,000 emails I sent to the soccer world that year, including every USL team. Uh, I don't know if there were any SL teams at the end, but I sent them there. I was doing PA for UPSL up in Boston and they emailed me back and I got a couple interviews. Uh, first one on the phone with Nick Fershaw, who helped start the show and is, you know, legendary voice of ETR. And then I came down to interview in person. I think Weeby had a wedding, so he wasn't there. And it was Simon and Nick. And I was so nervous to meet Simon. Uh, I was so scared of him because on the show, he's like this erratic, wild person. And he is the nicest human being ever. And he cares about soccer more than anyone I've ever met. And, go, you know, sparring with him as I got into MLS kind of like really helped me find my feet of what I wanted to do and what I could be. Uh, and so, yeah. And so then I got down to New York and was working on ETR. Any other thing I could pick up, I worked actually at Opta uh, for a while, part-time. Uh, we physically input the stats on as the matches were being played. I work uh, for Seton Hall and St. John's calling soccer games, NJIT as well, LIU Brooklyn. Um, and then anything I can pick up. And over the years, you know, you get some, you lose some, you get some, you lose some. So I cover a lot of USL. I cover uh, the youth championships, the Generation Adidas Cup for MLS, which is, was my favorite thing I do. Hopefully, fingers crossed, it comes back post-COVID. Uh, and just anything in the soccer world that I can find. Uh, my other passion is basketball. I think they're the same. It's weird when I say that, I th that people get surprised. To me, it's like so obvious that they're similar worlds. Um, and so those are the two that I do most of my work with. And, you know, it's... It's a small world. The MLS world is one of the things I'd say. So you guys being around, I'm sure you've already seen, right? Now you get to know people. For example, Josie name dropped my show today. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Positive, negative, whatever. Josie's heard of it. You know, it's a small world and we all get mentioned. And so, uh, so yeah. Uh, so I think you'll see that is it's not easy to move up, but it's easy to start to feel a part of it. And then once you do, it's such an exciting feeling. I remember for me, there's a few big moments, but one of the first one was uh, I was in the room when they interviewed Stu Holden. I wasn't even on. And I was like, that's Stu Holden. <laughs> and, you know, now I get to do stuff with him. A little shin and tonic, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that was a great call. Oh, it was amazing. Yeah. I love it. I love it. So there's two things you talked about there. Before we get into the rest of mm -hmm. the extra time conversation, you said basketball, college basketball or the NBA? I grew up with everything. So actually being from New York, I love high school basketball. Um, and my area, Danny Green was one town over from me. Tobias Harris is in my area. I saw Kemba Walker in high school. Uh, Lance Stevenson, born ready, legend. So my whole area, I grew up really into high school basketball. And then the Knicks. The Knicks are, they're a godsend. They're the worst run and worst owned team in the history of sports. But their like identity and fan base is the best in the world. 
So that's kind of more for me. I love college basketball. Um, I grew up actually going to the Big East tournament every year. And as I got later in high school, that would be my big like gift from my family would be like, okay, you can actually skip school one day and go to the early rounds of the Big East tournament. And we'd show up at the garden and be there from, you know, noon to 10 p.m. and just watch every game. Uh, so uh, all of it, really. But I think for me, the NBA is the best sports league in the world. Even Premier League, I love, obviously, Bundesliga. Even if you want to call Champions League in that, the NBA for a league, to me, is the best one. Uh, and so that's kind of my passion right now. Cool. So where I was leading with that was seeing if you made a March Madness bracket, if it's busted yet and in the trash or on fire. Mine was put in the trash the moment I filled it out. <laughs> this year was hard to follow. And so I got to the bracket and was like, I have zero idea right now. This is probably the least I've known going into a tournament. And I was like, you know what? I'll write some stuff down, but I'm not really going to show people. I'm in like one actual money bracket. That's it. And it was garbage within 36 hours. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I took four Big Ten teams all the way to the Final Four. Nice. Now we have Gonzaga, Baylor, UCLA, and Houston. So that's what. So, so here's the thing with me with brackets and all sports. I go heart first. So you're about to ask me predictions maybe later. For uh, It doesn't matter. It's wrong because I always go hard. I would end up with brackets that were seven and ten seeds only in the Final Four. And I never won, but I couldn't yet next year. Still couldn't get myself out of it. You got a dream, man. I think we've all been guilty of overplaying the Cinderella story. But let's get back to extra time and let's go behind the scenes. When the cameras and mics are off, what are you, Weeby, and Doyle doing to stay up to date on all the news and rumors while preparing for upcoming episodes? Probably what everyone else is doing. I mean, we're reading everything. We watch everything. Uh, a lot of people love to message us and be like, why can't you talk about this team? You don't watch their games. We watch every game. We just don't have enough time. And I would say uh, we watch most games. I don't watch everything live, but I'll go back and watch almost everything else. Um, and so that Reddit is massive. I'm sure you guys know that. I, 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 sorry, don't mean to curse. I love uh, MLS Reddit and I live there. It's my first visit every single morning to see what's going on. And I'm in the comments. I don't talk that much, but I love seeing what all the fans and what everyone thinks about moves and the team. Cause that's, you know, it's really hard, especially this year with COVID, to get like sort of sometimes the pulse of different fan bases. And so that's a place to get it. Uh, and our producer now, Anders Arhus, who's a GOAT, he's stepped in, taken a lot of what I used to do. And so he's building out rundowns for us and he's checking stuff. And so we've got group chats. There's, you know, 18 ETR group chats. I don't know why we have to have so many. And I'll tell you this, I don't respond very often. Because if I write one text, I get 37 from Weeby. He puts one word in each text, which drives me insane. He knows that. That's why he's muted. Uh, and so we're talking about this stuff all the time. But we don't do this, you know, because it's a job, right? This is what we would be doing anyway. And so we're always on. And we're always the same as you guys are and the same as every fan out there. We're, we're, like, we're involved in everything. So, you know, if there's a CCL game on, we're talking about it in the group chat. And then we've got other group chats with people who we've met in the soccer world or other things, which, you know, we try and pull stuff in from every once in a while to the show. Yeah. And not only is it just MLS extra time, you guys just released a new show today, club and country extra time mm -hmm. where you guys will be putting out a monthly episode. And on top of that, you do another podcast, a football podcast where it covers Thank all you. of soccer. So you're just constantly doing podcasts and looking up information <laughs> and it's crazy. I can't imagine 
managing my time and just finding time to find all this information. The key is you don't. I'm just bad at time management. <laughs> I'm all over the place <laughs> all the time. But I love MLS. Uh, I love the U.S. national team, Canadian national team. I love CONCACAF. Uh, but I do love soccer everywhere. And, like, I didn't actually come to MLS first. And I think I love it all equally. And so I, I'm glad you brought up a football podcast because I sometimes forget to mention it. It's, it's kind of new. Uh, I co-host with a guy, Devang Desai, who's up in Toronto, who used to work for TFC. And now he works for a sports network, The Score, up there. Uh, which is awesome because he's got like a way different view on things. And, um, but it's so much fun for us to talk. I mean, we're talking Inter Milan, we're talking La Liga, we're talking internationals, all that stuff. And that's stuff that on ETR in a dream world, we'd get it in, but we get an hour plus every week and, uh, or twice a week and they keep adding teams and they don't have time. So it's (laughs) like, how can I add more teams into this? Now I got to get Austin FC in. Then we got to talk about Charlotte and St. Louis. They keep adding teams, but they don't give me more time. I need more time. <laughs> yeah, it's funny you talk about gathering the, the stats and, and looking up the information and the fact that you're, you're just you're bad at time management you're just always doing it. And, you know, I find myself at work when I should be doing work, you know, on the internet, looking up information for our latest podcast when I should be doing something else. And so hopefully nobody from my job is listening to this right now, but <laughs> in, in all of your years contributing to ETR, what have been some of your favorite episodes and in interviews or memories? That's a really tough one. Um, I, but yeah, that's why we asked it. I know you, you guys did a good job. Uh, in thinking about this, I, uh, one realized how long I've been on the show. That's a really long time. The first um, interview that came to mind actually was one that I wasn't even on. Uh, Weeby was down in Central America for World Cup qualifying, and he did one of the best interviews ever with um, Terrence Boyd, who no one talks about anymore, and no one cares about, about Terrence Boyd's turtle and how it pees on his hand and how he loves his turtle. And they were, like, sitting at a cafeteria table in Panama, and, you know, he sent it back for me to edit, and it was like I was rolling on the floor laughing. And that was, for some reason, the first one um, that came to me. Uh, so that's one I, for me, it's easier to think about the people that I've enjoyed talking to. It's harder to remember specific episodes. Although I'd say I'm proud of some of the work we've done. Um, especially when we're able to give players or other people, the platform that we have, um, who are doing better things than we are in the world and need it. Um, Mark Anthony K is a legend. He's an awesome person. I love him as a player. He should start for the a premier league team if he wanted to but I hope he doesn't. I want him to be here forever. Uh, and so we had him on, I think it was last year, right after the players refused to play or protested. Um, and he was, you know, a voice of that. And he's awesome. Um, we've had Dom Dwyer on a few times and he's always super nice, super fun. Uh, and this week we actually had Sebastian Legette on and he, uh, he's in quarantine out in Arizona. And with, with interviews, I'm sure you guys have seen this. It's so um, finicky the situation for that person. Do they have time? Are they stressed? Do they care about it? Don't they? And so it's very random when you get good ones and when you don't. So for Sebastian Legett, you know, he just came out of the national team. He's quarantining away from the team because he's already at preseason and they haven't come yet. He had nothing to do and he's just super nice. He's so engaging. Uh, so he was awesome this week. And, and a lot of the interviews, and I'm sure you've had this as well, it's better outside of the show. The before and after is better than the on the show part. Um, but those are some that come to mind. I'd say in MLS, we're still not there yet where players see the value in being open and teams want to be open. 
And part of that's on us, right? So for example, Josie feels like he opens himself up and then he gets slammed for it. And so we have to be better about taking what people give us and accepting them for it. And on the flip side, especially for teams in MLS, they need to accept being treated like adults. Like if you want to be covered, sometimes it'll be good and sometimes it'll be bad. And as long as you don't make it personal, it shouldn't be taken as personal. We're still not there yet as a league, but I think it's getting a lot better. And you really see guys as they get into the league start to get comfortable. Or like I sat with Ja'Cory Hayes when he was going into the draft and we did a couple things with him at the combine. And I was like, this guy's awesome. I cannot wait for him to get an MLS. It's not a surprise to me that he's so loved and influential as a player. Uh, But for other players, it takes them a really long time where you'll talk to a player and a few years later, you'll be like, it's a whole new experience with them, uh, which is really cool to see. Yeah, Ja'Cory was amazing. We actually had the privilege of having him on after the whole George Floyd situation. And you guys do a great job of it on Extra Time talking about bigger issues other than just soccer. So it was great to have Ja'Cory on. I saw Ja'Cory beat up on my Columbus crew today in a 5-2 preseason victory. And I love looking at pictures of Ja'Cory with his jersey tucked in because he's the only guy on the pitch he's, for the full nine. He's a tuck legend. Yeah, he's a tuck legend. But one thing that we learned in this podcasting journey is these players are more than, at least on our end, have been more than willing to come on and, you know, come on the show. Like I said, we had Ja'Cory Hayes. We had Brendan Aronson right before the Red Bull Salzburg move happened. And it almost felt like we broke the news. Extra time retweeted us. And it was, it was super cool. You guys are churning through my homegrowns and my young guys. And I love it. Those are the guys that need the coverage. I appreciate it. You got Aiden Morris, right? Yeah. Yeah. That, and that was one of our most difficult ones because we had never experienced having to go through a team's communication department. Mm -hmm. And we actually had to go through Carlos, who was the director of the Mm -hmm. comms department for the crew. Um, So that was a new experience, but it was a learning experience. So it's a, you know, we're learning as we go. Yeah. But I didn't, I didn't send you through my PR people, by the way. I just want everyone to know that. So I'm low maintenance right now. I'm low maintenance. We appreciate that, man. (laughs) I'm sure we, we would have had us go through the whole MLS upper echelon. Oh, it's a whole thing. I think Don has to specifically, uh, Commissioner Garber has to specifically be notified if you want to talk to Andrew. So it goes high up and then comes back down. All right, so let's get to our U.S. Youth National Team talk. And your guys' last, one of your latest episodes on March 29th, the first 30 minutes were dedicated to your reactions to the U.S. Youth National Team failing to qualify for the Olympics for the third straight time after losing 2-1 to to Honduras. If you scroll U.S. men's national team Twitter or even listen to Andrew Wiebe or Taylor Twelman vent about the topic, you would think the world is ending. David, is it that big of a deal that the U.S. youth national team didn't qualify for the 2021 Summer Olympics? So if you listen to the rest of that episode, I said no. I still feel that way. Um, and I don't – winning matters, right? And I'm so into this. I watched every minute of Olympic qualifying for every team, not just the U.S. I love this stuff. And I'm going to watch the Olympics uh, on the men's side and on the women's side. But the concept that something's wrong with U.S. soccer because they didn't qualify for this tournament, I think is overrated. And I think, to me, you should be upset. The level of reaction is what you need to gauge on something like this. In 2012 and 2016, we didn't qualify for the Olympics because we weren't good enough. And we didn't have enough young players coming through. And that was the worry at the time. This is not even relevant to that because that's not what happened here. What happened here is we've skipped a generation. Our first team national team is 23 and under. So no one came to Olympic qualifying. 
Also, most of our players that are eligible that we want there, they now play in Europe. So they're not available for Olympic qualifying. So that's, to me, most of what happened here. And so to say, well, U.S. soccer is on, this, on the wrong direction again, same as they did in 2018, failing to qualify for the World Cup because they didn't get into the Olympics, I think is wrong. And uh, I put down a laundry list of things that I think people always complain about in U.S. soccer circles. And I feel like, for the most part, they're hitting on all of them. You want youth performances? Three straight quarterfinals in the U20 World Cup, which everyone in the world knows is a more valuable youth tournament and production for future national teams than an Olympic six. You want the U.S. to win more dual nationals? Yunus Musa, Jordan Sichabu, uh, who am I forgetting now? Uh, Serginho Dest, who plays for Barcelona. You know, you want the U.S. to be more Latin American. That I can understand. And I think when you look at the team that went out in the Olympics, five or six players that were major parts of the team, uh, especially for the last game, were part of that. Can it get better? Yeah. Should it? Hopefully. Um, but I still think a lot of the things people were upset about in 2018 have fixed now. And yeah, this was a bad moment, but everyone all of a sudden reset themselves back three, four years. And they all, everyone was ready to, to jump off the train. And I don't think any of that is even relevant uh, to what happened. So I can understand being frustrated. I'm frustrated. I'm not happy about it. Uh, it's not a good thing, but it's a reality. And I think to me, the biggest thing that stood out was reading the list of players that have been sold for a million dollars plus that would have been on this team in the last year from MLS and saying, yeah, I don't really mind if Daryl DK is in the championship and Joe Scali got sold to a German Bundesliga team before he even played in MLS and Brendan Aronson's playing in Champions League and Europa League over qualifying for this Olympics. Yeah, and speaking of those guys that have been sold, just going back to the U.S. men's national team game that was played on Sunday, 15 of the 23 players rostered against Northern Ireland were U.S. youth national team U23 eligible. But my biggest takeaway from this whole thing is that Olympic success doesn't necessarily define World Cup success. We're in a year now where I believe in September or later on this summer, we're going to begin World Cup qualification. That is what we really need to prioritize right now. And I believe that's not necessarily what the USSF is saying, but that's through their actions. I believe that that's kind of what we're prioritizing. And when I say Olympic success doesn't define World Cup success, I found this interesting stat today. Honduras have now qualified for the last four Summer Olympics dating back to 2008, but have never won a World Cup match. And I think that says a lot about, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you. Now, at the same time, they finally qualified for a World Cup. And it, it's sort of the chicken egg thing, right? Well, they qualified for the Olympics because they had good generations coming through. That's why they qualified for the World Cup. And that's like a fair way to read it. That's not what's happening here. And I think the thing with all of this is you have to look at circumstance. For example, I thought it was a huge deal for Brazil to send a good team to the 2016 World Cup and win it. Neymar has been to two Olympics because one, he was at Santos for one of them. And so being a domestic team, they said, yeah, go to the Olympics. One, show yourself. And two, that's sort of national pride. And then the second one was, they had the entire tragedy of 2014 and they had to win a World Cup. They had to win an Olympic gold medal at the Maracanã. That is a specific example of something that happened for them. Brazil had never been, or not never, in the modern era, in the U23 ever, had never been to an Olympic final before that. So it didn't matter to them then. This one specifically mattered to them. Mexico still hasn't gotten past that fifth game that they, to that fifth game they want to, and they won the Olympic gold medal. And the gold medal was a huge moment for them as a country. 
but it hasn't changed their soccer reality since then. So it's all circumstantial. And I think that's a lot of this. Uh, and Taylor Twelman had his rant, which now Josie has reacted to. So now we're in the middle of it again. Uh, and he said proper football nations. And he talks about Germany and Brazil. Brazil doesn't care about the Olympics except for when they do. And Germany, I think, is such a unique scenario to talk about. And one of the things that I've thought about a lot this week is where we're at now and what I'm talking about with MLS teams selling players, I don't want the USSF to be in charge of player development anymore. And if the option is spend money on a U21 camp so that we're better for an Olympic qualifying or fund more coaching courses, I want them funding more coaching courses. And if it's, well, we could put money into research on how many international minutes and how many U20 minutes an MLS team should be required to have because we need to figure out how to develop the game or we could get a bigger staff for a U23 team and we could be better at that level, then I want the research. And the, that's what U.S. soccer should be doing now that we're at a point where, this, where the sport is stronger from a grassroots level. 20 years ago, they needed to build a residency and run it. And that was their job. That's not the case anymore. Yeah, I think after listening to the episode with, with you, Weeby, and, and Doyle going back and forth, all three of you brought a different take but it was almost as though they all were in line with each other. So I listened to you say that it didn't really matter that they, they didn't qualify for the Olympics because, you know, in the grand scheme of things, what we want to do is we want to win the World Cup, right? And then we'd be saying that we need to get away from this losing culture and, and making it okay to be a loser. And then you have Doyle who's saying, well, it was self-inflicted. Right. And so I think they were all different in their own respect, but they almost all come together. Like we absolutely right. You know, we do need to get away from that losing culture. And yes, really, it doesn't particularly matter that we didn't qualify for the, the Olympics because we really want to focus on the World Cup. And then, you know, Dole coming in saying, yes, this was all self-inflicted because maybe we could have picked some better players, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, uh, what, it, what it comes down to is, you know, mainly Weeby's take being that it seems as though nothing has changed, right? And you kind of just mentioned it a moment ago. We've made huge strides in the past four years where, you know, we're, we're developing youth. We are sending players overseas and all because now it seems like we've, we've failed at this, you know, Olympic qualifying event. Like you said, we're going back in time with that mindset of, well, we need to be better. We're not doing enough. Right. But we have taken huge strides and, and nothing changes overnight. Right. And so we're getting to those stages now today, even in the past two years, and we need to be proud of those things. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the things that I don't know if specifically it's the COVID situation, but the only way to prove you're better is to win because all the things we're talking about, most of them are on paper, right? The talent's better. They play at better teams. The U.S. hasn't won anything or improved on the field since they didn't qualify for the World Cup, but also we couldn't see it. And so I can understand the reaction to the Olympic part being like, well, here's qualifying and we got it wrong and it's the first time we got it wrong. All that's going to matter is September and uh, those, that first round of qualifying in CONCACAF. All that matters is getting to the next World's Cup. Uh, the problem with our argument or my argument in this is we don't have that example yet. And so right. I'm still kind of the straw man on this thing. Uh, but I think they've done the things right or they've done some of the things right that we wanted to be done right. And some of it's just reality. I think right. the game's grown. Globalization has changed things. Technology has changed things access to it. All these things have happened. Um, and yeah, I, I still, I understand the point, you know, you brought up Weeby's point of like one winning 
and winning in CONCACAF and all those things. And then his other point was the publicity of being in an Olympics. And that's the one that I think I get it. Why would you turn anything down? But at the same time, I don't know that that really turns the dial as much as we think. Uh, people don't watch team sports in the Olympics. It's going to be at 4.30 a.m. It's in Japan. You know, everyone's tuning in for Katie Ledecky at primetime. They're not tuning in to see <laughs> if, you know, Aaron Herrera can really dominate the right side of Nigeria's U22 team. Right, right. So while we're still talking about the U.S. youth national team, in their loss to Honduras, head coach Jason Kreitz had this to say regarding their performance, and quote, we have players that aren't moving. We have people on the ball that aren't committing defenders to make decisions to open up spaces. We have guys that look like they just don't really want the ball. With the lack of urgency and creativity in, in that comment, what do you, why do you think Christ left out guys like Caden Clark and Eric Williamson and Gianluca Busio, Cole Bassett, and Jeremy Bobasi off the roster? I can't tell you exactly. I think part of this that we, we, we should mention, in, in, not in favor of, but just to be honest, is so this tournament was supposed to happen a year ago. And based off the calendar, it would have been about three weeks into the MLS season. And this one happened before MLS a year late with all the, you know, things that COVID has thrown at us. So it was a different environment of this camp. I can't tell you what everyone looks like right now because I'm not in preseason. And so I, there could be the fact that a lot of these guys showed up and they weren't ready to play and they weren't physically fit or they were less fit than other players. And so he took the ones he wanted. Um, some of them don't make sense for the way the team formed. If you were going to play this style, I don't understand how Cole Bassett doesn't make sense. Um, per, that's the one, one of the ones that stood out to me, really. Right. Uh, Eric Williamson makes a ton of sense as well. Jeremy Abobasi. The Jeremy Abobasi one is so wild. One, because the team's young. Why would you not want a veteran, quote unquote? But the other is, you, it's a short roster. It's only 20 players. It's shorter than a normal tournament. So you'd think versatility would be such a huge part of that. Um, so I think you can't discount preseason mattering and preseason form mattering, especially when you're playing against players who are in season. And that's the big one is like, yeah, in MLS, you don't, maybe don't see it in week one because everyone's on the same page, but in CCL, you see it. And so that's kind of where it was at. It's kind of one of the reasons I think I said I wanted to get Canada, not because I thought Canada was worse than Honduras, but they're on the same page as us for most of the, for the most part with their players. So I think that's a huge part of it. But some of these players, I don't know. I think it's just preference. There's no other way to get around it because you can't look at it and say, well, these guys are not in the national team future. And so therefore, why would you bring them in here when most of those players you mentioned have a brighter future probably and more expectations than the guys who were there. So it just seems very bizarre uh, the way the whole thing worked out. And that's the self-inflicted part, which I think is fair to complain about because that's what sports are for. And Jason Christ coaches a team publicly then he has to take that criticism um and that's the part i think that's frustrating for people and there, we also have to mention atlanta united choosing not to let guys go which is their right and you can understand right gabriel heinze is new these guys are a major part of your team but if we're all in this together then we're all in this together and if we're not then we start to split things up and change the way that we act yeah, absolutely. It would have been nice to have the depth of Miles Robinson and George Bello there. But one thing I want to focus on before we move on is we talked about versatility. and I want to be specific about versatility in the midfield. We listed the guys, Eric Williamson and Cole Bassett. I think for him to say that quote that Mike D just read about guys that 
they weren't showing for the ball. They were acting like they didn't want the ball. They were lacking creativity. But four of the five guys that we had played in the middle of the pitch, Johnny, Tanner Testman, Perea, Yule, and Dotson. Dotson's the only guy that's like almost a true box-to-box or a more versatile midfielder. Mm-hmm. The rest of those guys are sixes. You know, Johnny plays six for his team in Brazil. Tanner Testman fluctuates between a six and an eight for Dallas. Perea is a six for Orlando. Jackson Yule is the six for San Jose, although Jackson Yule played a little bit further up the field when Perea was – playing six, but I think it's, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results and, you know, continuing with the same lineup. I know we couldn't bring those guys back in after the fact, but it's pretty obvious why there was a, why we were lacking creativity. And and I'll say this on the other side, um, Canada, as I said, had a similar problem. Mauro Biello changed up his lineup every game. He played different center forwards, Different players on the wings, changed up fullback, was forced to change center back. Derek Cornelius, the captain of the team, was injured for the final game against Mexico, where Canada was just as good for 55, 60 minutes as Mexico. So, as you said, he tried things. And it's like we got there, and it, you don't know if, if, if Jason felt, Jason Christ felt hamstrung by the you know, bigger national team program and thought, well, I don't want to do things that are different than what they want. But I think that's that place where you say, well, it's your freedom to qualify. We're going to talk to you about how we want you to play. We're going to help pick the pool. But once you get there, you got to figure out how to get through the games. And I think that's the frustration um, with him. The other thing I'd say is all those guys you listed, Jackson Ewell's the only starter. And there is a level of quality that's necessary. And sometimes there's a reason a guy starts and sometimes it's opportunity. I think Hassani Dotson could be a starter in MLS. I think he could start for a bunch of teams, maybe not Minnesota this year. Uh, I think Tanner Tessman, the same, but these aren't, you know, they're, they're not guys who have established themselves yet for reasons and for opportunity. And I think you saw that with this team to that point of like, they're not the guys who carry teams week after week and they don't have that experience. So you mentioned Yule is probably the only starter in that bunch, which brings me to a conversation that's all over U.S. Men's National Team Twitter right now. Who is the backup six to Tyler Adams? Who do you think it is, David? I think right now it's probably Jackson Ewell. Um, I, it's the question that makes me most nervous about the U.S. National Team. I think Tyler Adams is the best talent in the U.S. National Team pool. And that doesn't mean he – I don't know what that means, actually. But I think he, at his position in the world, can reach that highest rank of he's in this pool of top 10, top 15, top five defensive midfielders on the planet. Uh, unfortunately, he's in and out of that role at Leipzig. He's on the field now, at least, which is great. Uh, sometimes at wing back, sometimes in the center. And, you know, that's why you want him to be there, right? There are so many good players in that role. For Leipzig, they got six or seven options that they can push in there. But behind him and with his injury history and with availability, we don't know what it'll be with COVID the rest of this year and with travel and these congested windows. It's nerve-wracking to me. Uh, so Jackson Ewell's that guy right now. Um, my hope, my, my fingers crossed that in September, it'll be easier, a, a better debate to have. Because my hope is a Russell Canals plays well for DC United. A Marky Delgado plays well for Toronto FC. James Sands plays well for NYCFC. Maybe someone that I'm forgetting now. And there are players in there. You look through the depth charts, there aren't really a ton of Americans right now in MLS that you could say, well, they've earned that spot. I know the Columbus stuff on here. Darlington Nagby's his own conversation, and I don't think he's coming. So, and I don't know that that's his role totally. 
So yeah, that, that's a really frustrating question. I think Kellen Acosta put himself in that conversation this week. I don't need to see him play there every week for Colorado because we're asking for him to do it maybe once in World Cup qualifying, right? We're not asking him to be that guy. So I think he's in there. And I think that was what was a good performance from him against Jamaica. And I think something – I'm glad you brought up Kellen Acosta. Kellen Acosta played a completely different role as a defensive midfielder than Tyler Adams would. Tyler Adams is the guy that's literally staying in between the two center backs right in front of them. And then when somebody gets forward in the back line, he kind of drops almost into the back line. Kellen Acosta was involved a lot more in the attack, in the playmaking, in, in the final third, and looked to combine with the other midfielders. So I was happy to see Kellen play as a six, but in that kind of a role that fit his style. And it, one of the things I talk about a lot with friends uh, and people in the soccer world and whatever is the way Bruce Arena handled, I think it was Honduras at home in Mexico away in his first uh, window when he came back as manager after Jurgen Klinsmann. If you remember, we beat Honduras 5-0 in California. We were all happy. The world's back, blah, blah, blah. He then rolled out a completely different 11 in Mexico that had trained a different system. And I genuinely believe you have to have a road CONCACAF and a home CONCACAF style. And you can find the players who fit that. And so if you're talking about, as you said, right, Kellen Acosta, more comfortable on the ball, wants to play a little bit higher up. Maybe you don't trust him as much defensively, can't cover as much ground, doesn't really recognize play in defensive moments at the same speed or ability as a Tyler Adams. Okay, then you're going to start Tyler in Mexico. And then you're going to start Kellen at home against Curacao or Canada, where you think you'll have more possession. And that's something that will change this window because the three games you'll have to rotate. But I think it's something that we should always have been thinking about is what are the different ways that we're going to win games with the different groups. And it comes down to the coaching staff being flexible and understanding the tactics of the other team and, you know, what people, what combinations of players on our team, on the U.S. men's national team, are going to work well together against different systems. But getting back to the five guys that were left off, you know, Caden Clark, Eric Williamson, Busio, Bassett, and Abobasi, those five guys contributed for a combined 19 goals and 15 assists in their 2020 MLS seasons. So our young guys are performing, and that's going to lead us right into our next question regarding the status of the league. So, David, throughout our one year of podcasts, we have discussed at length how to properly classify the MLS at one point, many considered the MLS to be a retirement league because of guys such as Beckham, Henri, Stevie G, and others. Thank you for their service. They were great when they were here. But they came here later in their careers. Now we are exporting our top young talent, including Brendan Aronson, who we've talked at length about, Martin McKenzie, Daryl DK, who looks – he's gaining interest day in and day out. We're seeing a new team linked to him and others. In addition to that, MLS clubs continue to bring in young and talented players from South America and other regions across the world. How would you classify the MLS? Is it a retirement league, a develop and sell league, or is it something completely different? It's a great question. First, I have to say, because Ben Bear would kill me if I didn't, you called it the MLS in there, and you wouldn't ah. do that, so you're classifying it incorrectly already. But um, it's a fascinating question, and I'm going to get into all of it right here real quick. Um, there is no country in the world that, has the success we have in sports outside of soccer and the population and GDP that we have that is building a league like we are. And so everything about MLS is unique for that reason. Um, Canada is similar to Australia, right? They're smaller countries. There's not the expectation that you're going to have the best league in the world on your shores. With the U.S., that's the expectation, right? NBA, NFL, MLB, 
I don't watch that much hockey, but NHL is still here. The expectation is we're the best at everything. So we've got that. We've got the ability to be the best. And then we've got the reality, which is, well, you have to get there at some point. Um, I love this question because I think it's, as you, you, you said those names, Steven Jarrett, all those names, it's, diff- it's a different answer than it was a few years ago. And it'll probably be a different answer again in a few years. Where I think we're at right now is a mix in between. And that's probably the best place for MLS. And I think from here on out, you're going to look at every champion and say, that guy was a veteran legend. Wow, this young guy was on that team before he got sold to X team. Here's the MLS lifer in this group. And so I think that's the makeup of good MLS teams now. And that's probably the reality going forward. I think we've shed the retirement league cliches, not to everyone, and you're never going to fix everyone. And it's also not totally true, right? Zlatan came here, although now he's killing it in Syria. So maybe that doesn't count. Um, kind of look at sort of what's going on in Miami, but not the same thing. So there is still an element of that. Uh, and then there's also this other side, which is, well, everyone's now going to sign a 20-year-old Argentine or Colombian winger because they've got all this new young money, and then they're going to try and sell them all. So I think that's going to be the reality for a really long time. And MLS, and I think that's a good thing because it allows the different markets and different teams to operate in different ways. Uh, you can have teams that will only sign older guys and be dominant in that way. And you'll have teams that are young and scrappy and they'll make their money through selling those players and then building on. And I, I like that about MLS. I feel like in a lot of leagues, everyone's trying to run the same model. That doesn't work in MLS and also you don't need to. So I don't think I have a great answer to that. But at the same time, I think that's the reality of the question. Um, the one thing that changes everything, and I don't know if it'll happen, is if we link up with Mexico somehow, it's going to be the best league in the world. I'm not even kidding. It, it would be everything. Uh, I don't know that that's a reality. I, no one puts me in talks like that. No one knows. No one cares what I think. So that would be the only thing that would change things drastically quickly. Someone get David Goss involved in those conversations, yeah. please. <laughs> sure. So with the progression of the league has made to get to this point that you just talked about, do you think the league has gained credibility from fans, teams, and leagues across the world? I think so. I think that I have friends that are Euro snobs who watch MLS now, who know about it, or at least respect it. And I I don't see anymore when there's a rumor of an MLS player in Europe, the reaction is, oh, why are we going to sign a guy from MLS? It's more like, hey, tell us about this guy. You know, Celtic fans are like, who's Mark McKenzie? What is he good at? And that's like, I have multiple friends who are Scottish that are Celtic fans that I met at a World Cup a few years back. They text me and ask me. And that I think is different than the way it used to be, which is, ugh, they're going to sign a player from MLS. Why waste your time? And I think the same the other way. I don't feel like the commentary on players is, oh, you're giving up and going to MLS. I think there's a level of excitement and interest in coming here. So I think it's gained a lot. You're not going to fix every Twitter troll and Every guy who goes and watches a fifth division English team is like, mate, is football. And I'm fine with that because I wouldn't want to hang out with a lot of those people. So I'm good having my little circle over here and letting them stay over there. But I, I think it would be silly to say that it hasn't gained. Um, I spend a lot of time in Mexico when I can, and I have a lot of Mexican friends. They've got a funny perception of this league. They don't think that MLS teams have gone far in CCL. They think Javinko and Vela have. Like they find ways for it to be okay and acceptable that MLS teams have had some success, but it's not MLS in general, Uh, but they're still starting to come around. Yeah. And I think to your point, David, when we heard that Paul Ariola and Jordan Morris were going over to Swansea, 
from everything that I saw from Swansea Twitter and everything, it seemed like the fans were really excited to get those two guys. Unfortunately, they both got injured and their yeah, loan spells. Yeah, unfortunately, the loan spells did not go well. You know, speedy recovery to Jordan Morris. Hopefully, we're going to see some Paul Ariel this year. But yeah, it does seem like overall the U.S. is gaining the MLS. Again, the MLS. <laughs> is we'll work gaining. on it. You're only, you just started. It'll be part of the progression of the podcast, similar to the league. And it's when we're a, all at our peak form, you'll be saying MLS. It's just such a natural thing to say the before. You know, whatever. Anyways, I feel like this is probably a good uh, moment to go to our ad. So listeners, we're going to take a quick break from a word from our sponsors, Added Time Outfitters. Stick around because after the break, we'll be discussing the MLS offseason winners and losers, the MLS coaching carousel, key week one matchups, and so much more. We'll be back in 60 seconds. We all love the beautiful game. We spend countless hours watching, tweeting, discussing, playing, and talking about the sport. And we all have our favorite memories when our teams made history. Moments like Liverpool's miracle in Istanbul or Celtics 2-1 triumph over arguably the best Barca side ever. Those moments that keep us coming back for more. But what if you could carry those moments with you all the time? At a time, Outfitters creates soccer-inspired wristbands to let you wear those memories on your wrist. Each reversible elastic design gives supporters of the beautiful game a unique way to rep their favorite team in any setting. With wristbands for your favorite teams from across Europe, the USA, and beyond, each added time design incorporates a 90-minute story from that famous match. Check out all 24 of Added Time Outfitters' current designs on the web at www.addedtime.com or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Added Time Outfitters. Welcome back to Season 3, Episode 7 of MLS Gone Wild, featuring Extra Time co-host David Goss. Head over to AddedTimeOutfitters.com to get all your soccer-inspired wristbands and apparel. Use code GONEWILD, all one word, at checkout for 10% off your entire order. All right. Now we're going to start getting into it, David. So Let's go. (laughs) MLS opening day is two weeks away, and we have a number of new faces in charge uh, around the league and even some old faces in new places. Greg Vanny departed Toronto FC to join LA Galaxy, while Chris Armas looks to fill in his shoes in Toronto. Gabriel, is it Heinze? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Josh Wolf, Hernan Losada, Phil Neville, Wilfred Nancy, and Gerard Struber, who technically coached one match last year, fill the other six coaching vacancies around the league. So of the new coaches, those eight guys um, across the league, which coach will have the biggest impact on their team in year one and why? It's a great question, and it's – I think coaching in MLS is like one of the best storylines right now. You have so many different ones from different backgrounds and styles. And on top of that, you've got, you know, guys who have been somewhere for a while and new coaches. And so it's kind of one of the things I love talking about the most. Um, I think you mentioned, you mentioned Vanny and Armis going to new clubs. I think they'll both have success. I don't know what this year specifically will look like, but I think they're both going to be there for a little while and it's going to be good fits. Um, it's hard for me to get away from Hernan Losada. That was a good DC team last year, and they're the same team this year. That's a good roster. It fits the way he wants to play, I think. Um, It's young. It's energetic. He's brought in a few pieces already. So I think when you talk about impact, like they were so low last year, and I think they can get pretty high this year. That, to me, is the biggest swing uh, from year to year. And so I'm really excited 
to see what he has to, what he's going to do. I think it'll be tough because he didn't know he was going to get this job until fairly late. And this league is really unique. And so I know he's done a ton of research and put in a lot of work. It's still hard. It's hard to understand the travel and the different opponents. And so you got to learn it all at one time. And it's a lot to take in. Um, but he has Chad Ashton there who's been around for a while and was the interim coach last year. And so I think DC is going to have success. The other one would be Josh Wolf. I don't know how to characterize it because, well, they're an expansion team. So even if they were last in the league, they'd get more points than last year. So I don't know how to characterize his impact, but the build in Austin has been good. Uh, he's been a part of it from day one. He understands what he's doing. He knows how to win in this league. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how expansive he tries to be in year one with a bunch of new pieces. But Greg Berhalter, who is his uh, – I've talked to people who played for them who said you'd be at training sometimes. You'd be facing the other way. One of them would start talking, and you didn't know which one it was. Like they can sound that similar, and their soccer ideas are that similar. Um, Greg Berhalter was an immediate turnaround for Columbus, but to get where they were at MLS Cup and the team they were, it takes a couple of years. So it'll be interesting year one for Austin. Yeah, I, I think so. I think so too. And something I want to say about Josh Wolf, yes, he has these seven years as an assistant, basically all under Burhalter at the crew and with the U.S. men's national team. So he has that coaching experience. He's also coming into a roster that's full of veterans. You have Matt Beesler, Nick Lima, Ben Sweat, Alex Ring, and Diego Fagundes. So he's got a locker room full of veterans that have played in this league, know how it works, and know how to win. So I think that's important for Josh Wolf entering year one as a head coach for an expansion side, Austin FC. Yeah, I agree. But if you – the way he wants to play is intricate. So it's going to take time. Even if you're smart, even if you know soccer, Cecilio Dominguez was a Liga MX player. He's a Paraguayan international. He knows the game. It still takes time to get that connection. Um, the only other example is Bob Bradley. But well, LAFC, I think, was fifth his first – their first year. It's one of the best I've ever seen an expansion team play. It's some of the best soccer I've ever seen them play. And he was very specific about what he was doing. But I also think COVID still throws a wrench in that because, you know, Bob had his group in preseason the day he wanted them there and was working on the same stuff with the same group over and over and over. And one of the things that we got to remember for this year is there's a ton of international going on as well. And while MLS is taking some breaks, it's not all of them. And so it's going to be hard to have your unit. And for a team that's literally no one's ever played together before, I think it's going to be tough to reach the peak of what he wants it to be. Yeah, I, I agree. It'll be a tough year one, but if he sticks it out and, you know, they decide to stick with him for year two, the longer he has that team, the better they'll be, obviously. But I think they'll fail fair rather well in year one. But another one of the new coaches that you haven't touched on is Gabriel Heinze. They had Tata Martino. They won in 2018. Frank DeBoer came in, I believe, 2019, 2020. They didn't make the playoffs this past year. And now they have Gabriel Heinsett coming in, bringing in his guys that he wants on that roster that fit his style of play. Do you think they're going to have a full swing with Joseph back and with Gabriel Heinsett there? They're definitely going to be better. But I guess if Joseph came back and DeBoer was still there, they'd be better as well. Um, I have them competing for the playoff spot. I just think it's going to be hard year one to get everything together. They need to get a center back in. I know they're saying this one's done, but we've heard that five times before. And yeah, every time Felipe tweets, my heart flutters. But, uh, and he's not getting them wrong. It's literally not happening. They're in the door and something's come up every single time. So fingers crossed, they finally got this one done, it sounds like. Um, and that's a pretty good base to start from. So, you know, 
I think the expectations for Atlanta is they're top two in the East. I don't have them there. I have them in the five to eight range um, going into the year. And so I think hindsight, so I think to all your points, hindsight improves them. They're a better team. They're probably not where they want to be. They're probably not where they expect to be. But to your point about Josh Wolf, I think it'll be trending in the right way and they'll feel comfortable about it next year. It's smart for them to continue to get players that hindsight wants because for everything I've heard from people, you really don't want to try and bring in players you don't know right now because you can't do the same level of interaction. You can't fly and meet them. You can't bring them to the city. You can't meet their spouses and their family and all those things. And so it makes sense that for hindsight to double down on the guys he knows. And if you're Atlanta and you're willing to kind of spend the money and burn players that you've already dealt, you know, spent all this money to get, then why not do it? Yeah, I agree. Winning early in the MLS is important. And you can argue this point, but I think Phil Neville and Inter Miami is under the most pressure of all these coaches in year one. What do you think? It's not, it's not a bad shout. Um, I think Armis probably is just because of the quality, this, the success, the quality. He's the one taking over for a guy who chose to leave. Everyone else takes over for someone that gets fired. So the expectations are already lower because the team's bad. Um, I think Inter Miami is actually going to, they're going to be better than most people think this year. I don't know if that makes them a playoff team, Um, but they're a better team than they were last year. I can understand with Phil Neville, you could say we're basically doing expansion again. And the expectations for Inter Miami were really high last year. So you're a lot of people I think are transferring that on to him, but David Beckham is going to give him his chance. Like that's why he brought him in to be his guy. And They're boys. Exactly. You know, um, <laughs> class of 92, yeah. right? Everything goes back to the same one year when you all graduated from your academy. So, uh, so I think he's going to get his opportunities. I can, I get what you're saying. And I think you could say his job might be the hardest because he's got to get the most out of these pieces where I don't know that it all fits correctly. And they, they don't, they can't control a lot of it now. Because you're already locked into Pissarro. You already have Iguain. You have Matuidi. And so they brought in Gregory to fill a lot of those gaps. But you need to get the best out of Pissarro. There's no who's going to be our DP. How does it work? For example, Columbus, I think, is a perfect one. 2019, you had Caleb and Tim Bezbachenko sort of build a team with some holes that they could fill. And then they bring in Zeller around in 2020. It's the opposite for Phil Neville and Chris Henderson and David Beckham. Those holes are filled. Now they got to figure out how to make it all work. And I don't know that it necessarily does. Uh, I wasn't a fan of the Pissarro signing when it happened. I think he's a talented player. He's not. In MLS, a DP needs to make more of a difference in the attack, and he shouldn't even be that guy. Uh, so it's going to be really hard for him to figure that all out. So I think it's fair to say that he's got the hardest job coming into the year. I agree with everything that, that's been said. Um, I took extensive notes on the coaches. But one, one thing that you did bring up that I did like was the, the Herman Osada. Um, I believe he's the one that coached at Beershot, right? Mm-hmm. You know, he had success with them in a very short period of time with a very small budget, um, which proves, you know, kind of that the same thing can be done with a DC team. So I do like uh, that signing as well. He's a player's coach. He's somebody that knows um, that he doesn't – he said it in an interview that I watched um, – he knows what he wants, but he's not locked into it. He's willing to work with the type of players that he has around him to the capabilities that they are uh, and work with the system that fits that, that, that uh, need best. So I really do like that. Um, but I'm, I'm not going to go into any more. I mean, you covered pretty much everything that I, so, that I was going to say. And so did Blake. So, I mean, we can move so right on. So the one I'll add in here is I think 
I don't think the pressure is there to win now, but I don't really understand how the LA Galaxy are going to be good. And Greg Vanny's a winner. So it, it's just going to be weird, I think, this year to watch that go down. I think they'll have spells where they're good and everyone will feel like they're turning the corner. I don't – the way the roster is constructed right now, and Greg Vanny's a great coach, so he could outperform that, and that's awesome. But the way the roster is constructed right now, I don't see how they're very successful this year. And I don't, even though people understand what's happened the last few years, I think there's still expectations. Of course. I, I couldn't agree more. I think that when we were writing out this question and thinking about it, I mean, the, the obvious choice, you know, is, is the Greg Vanny, you know, wanting to leave Toronto because he wants a better project and going to LA Galaxy, which is that perfect project, right? But I just don't think that it's going to get done in year one. I think it's going to be very much the way that he did things with Toronto. And over the course of a couple of years, we'll, we'll start to see that success. And if he gets, uh, you know, a new Javinko, then maybe it'll, maybe it'll happen quickly. <laughs> All right, so we've talked about the new coaches that have entered the league. Now let's talk about all the new offseason acquisitions. Since the end of last season, there have been over 180 players acquired across all teams through homegrown contracts, the MLS Superdraft, loans turned permanent, or transfers. David, which teams were your winners and losers of this offseason window? How many can I list? I don't want to list every team. Give me, a, give me a numbers limit here on winners and losers. Three on each. Okay, I'm going to take three on each. That's perfect. Okay, so I'm not going to say Austin because I feel like they're building a new team. I don't know that that's totally fair. Um, so for winners this year, so far in the offseason, I'm going to say New England Revolution. Eastern Conference Finals last year, they didn't have massive holes, but they had holes to fill, and they did it. They brought in their left winger, uh, starting Icelandic International to give them a style of creativity that doesn't exist on the roster. Uh, they brought in uh, Captoom to play in central midfield to cover ground that they just didn't have. That was their biggest weakness last year. And they get Luis Casado healthy. And then they brought in a left back to give them a bit more versatility on the back line. They got Dewan Jones, Brandon Bay, who's someone who, if he doesn't start, every MLS team should be trying to trade for because he's a starting right back in this league. They have a hole, I think, at backup center back, but every team has a hole. Um, so that's one of them. I'm going to say Vancouver, and I've talked about them a fair amount in the offseason. They've made moves. I think they made most of the moves they have to. They need a 10. They've said they need a 10. They've rumored names. They've been fairly open and aggressive about it. So their offseason isn't done, uh, but they needed a second creative player on the wing. They got that into Diber Caicedo. They needed a legitimate ground cover in central midfield alongside Valdissimo, and that's Kaijo Alexandre that they were able to nail. And then they brought in a starting right back, whether it, it competes with Nerwinski and makes him better, or that's their starter in Gaspar. Either way, I think they're just a better team. So those are, my, so those are, the, those are two of them. I've got like eight other teams listed here, but you gave me a limit, so I'm working on it. Columbus is a clear one. They got better. They were the best team in the league. Uh, Blake just pointed as a Columbus hat. And you're not wrong, right? They came out of MLS Cup. They kept everyone, and they added Kevin Molino, who was one of the best players in the playoffs, Bradley Wright Phillips, which gives them depth at a position they didn't have, and then Matan and just saying, why not get better when we can? Um, it's hard to not say FC Cincinnati, not because they're winners, just because they've made so many moves, and they've been so aggressive. Um, so that was kind of going to be my third one. So you can pick your Ohio team. I'm saying both. I'm giving you four. Sorry. You, you just have to accept that. I'm going I'm going to I'm going to tell you FC Cincinnati and I'm going to tell you why cuz they they only scored 12 goals in all of last season. They just signed their club record signing Brenner. They pulled in Matarita from New York City FC. 
They just got Luciano Acosta, and they just signed a winger, Isaac Antonga. He's a Ghanaian winger. They just signed him today. It became official, and they're rumored to be getting a center back as well, mm-hmm. as well as Jurgen Lacardia. You know, he's still on the squad as well. He's underperformed throughout his first two years in, in MLS. But I think that we're going to see way more than 12 goals scored by this team this year. So I think that they did a really good job this offseason. And I think that's fair. Um, and as we talked about with Inter-Miami, it's so hard to rebuild in this league. And when you're locked into contracts, one of the things that's just been tough about FC Cincinnati is they've had talent. You mentioned Locadia. He was on the roster last year. You know, they brought in Kubo. Like, they've had talent. And they've spent to get it almost every season. And they've just not been good. So there still feels like there's something that they don't know how to do it right. Um, but I they think all goals. the pieces you t- – Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> Which helps. You should try and do that to win. But I, all the pieces you mentioned, I think they're all improvements. They brought in a little bit of MLS know-how in Mazzarito, which I thought was smart, but otherwise it's trying to get talent in from the league. I think they've done it in a good way. So I'll allow you, the Columbus Crew fan, to choose FC Cincinnati as a winner of this offseason. Blake says that. <laughs> don't let my friends hear this, man. <laughs> <laughs> and I, losers. I got to give you losers. Yeah. Um, so I think by the time this podcast comes out, some of these may have changed. Uh, NYCFC is a clear one. They've just, it, they had the deepest roster in MLS two years ago, uh, three years ago, and it's just gotten thinner since then. And they've not even, they've not brought anyone effective in to replace. You don't always have to sign someone new, but then you got to keep the guys you have. And they've had some great academy teams. They haven't really promoted those guys through. Obviously, Gio Reyna, the best of them, they didn't get the opportunity to play. But there's no clear way that they get better this year. Even if they bring in Alfredo Morales, it doesn't improve this team by a whole lot. It's actually not a position of need for them because I actually think Keaton Parks and Sands in central midfield and Maxi, if he's healthy, is the best part of this team. So that's one. Second one, Seattle. And part of that's just Jordan Morris towards ACL. He's one of the best players in MLS. They're going to be worse. They're in a weird spot right now. I think with the spine they have, they'll compete. You're starting to talk about a rebuild. You're not there yet, but, you know, Garth Lagerwey has to be thinking about it. How does this all end? Nicola Dara will at some point be older. Jao Paulo, who they signed when we all know they wanted to sign Gregory first, a little bit older. So kept your window open, but makes the you know, long term a little bit tighter. So Seattle has to be one, and the other one's Minnesota. They lost Kevin Molino. They're still a good team. I think they'll be a good team this year, but they haven't really improved. They've brought in a bunch of depth, which is smart, but they don't have a starting center forward. Now that's the one that by the time this podcast comes out could be incorrect. They could have a Boca Junior starter. They could be the best team in MLS, and I'll look like an idiot, but I'll take it. So just for full disclosure, this will come out on Friday for everybody listening to this. So on Friday, if I'm an idiot, I'm not going to listen to you all weekend. If you still want to come back on Monday and say something, I'll be happy to respond. So I think before we move on to our next question, one thing you talked about Seattle that I found interesting and I have them, our next question is about, is there a team that's going to have a fall from grace? And I actually have Seattle labeled there strictly because Jordan Morris contributed to 18 goals last year, 10 goals, eight assists. And they only brought in Kellen Rowe and please help me. Uh, who else? Is, uh, Freddie, Freddie Montero. Montero. Freddie Montero, a, a club legend. And those are really the only two players they, they got. They lost Joven Jones. 
and Kevin Leardam, or Kelvin Leardam, amongst others. So I think it's difficult. And I think if we had to identify a player in this league that is the most valuable player to their team out of the whole league, it could be Nico Ladero, just because they're losing 18 goals in one guy this year. Yeah, and he was already that guy potentially. So now it's an even bigger one for him. I, I agree with you. I think they need more production, not more production. Raul Ruiz Diaz needs to be even better, and I don't know how that happens. Their back line needs to be better. That's where this team's able to maintain is if, if Ariaga can play at a level that's expected of him, and whether it's three in the back with Shane O'Neill as well, whatever it is, if they can be elite defensively, they have enough probably to get through. And the thing with Seattle – Sounds like a cliche, but it's not because it's always true. Is if they're relevant in June, they'll be good in September and October. They know how to do it. Uh, they've done it before. And I've talked to people in Seattle who said after we won the first one, the culture just, the atmosphere changed. That we believe that we can do it. And so there's less pressure. There's less reaction. When they lose a game in May, people aren't really freaking out where you can't stay the same about other teams that haven't won before. I think they'll find in the summer, they'll be smart and they'll find a guy who's on a free or needs some minutes and they'll bring them in on a short-term TAM deal to, to bridge the gap until Jordan Morris and they'll be competitive. But you have to question them right now with the team that they're going to start the season. with. Absolutely. I mean, especially with, I'm going to, I'm, you talked about going with your heart. I mean, for me, yes, players, you know, have been acquired. Teams have made moves. The winner here is the crew. It's the crew. And we'll leave it at that. We'll leave it at that. We'll move on. So based off of the, you know, winners and the losers of the offseason acquisitions, let's talk about some predictions for some other categories, right? So who is your dark horse team this year uh, that's going to surprise a lot of people? So I said DC. I think that's the one to me that makes the biggest points jump um, this season. And as I said, it's just too much talent on that team. Uh, to not be competitive. So I think they're the ones that I'm really looking at that's going to jump, jump. I don't think it's going to surprise anyone that New England's good, right? Even though they didn't have a great regular season last year, they were Eastern Conference finalists. So if they're a top two, three team in the East, I don't think that that's quote unquote going to surprise anyone. And those are really the two that I look at that are going to jump. Um, I think you've got teams that are going to move around, but I don't see anyone else. For example, last year coming into the year, I picked the crew I think second in the East. I picked them to win MLS's back as we went through the season and they weren't in the playoffs the year before. I had high expectations. I don't see a team like that that's completely changed themselves. Um, I'm sure Atlanta fans see a team like that. I don't see it. Uh, so I think that DC probably is that biggest jump. Okay. Is there a team that you have in mind that is going to have a fall from grace and go from top to bottom? So Seattle, we just mentioned, right? And I think it makes sense, and they, they'll say it themselves. They lost Jordan Morris. I don't know how you can not think Philly's going to fall off to an extent. They're not going to win Supporter Shield this year. I don't think that team is good enough. Um, I think they'll still be a playoff team. I think they'll still be competitive. I think they have, in Jack Elliott, enough cover at center back, but Mark McKenzie was elite. And that's one of the things I think we're sort of missing is what he allowed team, their team to do when they did press high. He can cover that ground in the back. And then he's comfortable taking it out on his left foot and creating. And then the depth, because remember, Jack Elliott started defensive midfield and center back over the last five, six weeks of the year to get them to, ML, to, get them to the Supporters' Shield. They don't have that guy now to fill in because he's a starter. And then Brendan Aronson, 
a big loss as well. And I know Anthony Fontana scored this morning and, you know, I cover a lot of the Academy stuff and they've got some great prospects coming up. I don't think anyone's ready this year to do the things that Brandon Aronson did for them. So that's the other one that makes sense. And then NYCFC, they have been every year a Supporters Shield and MLS Cup contender coming into the year since 2017, four or five years. I don't feel that way about them right now. And I understand that two days before the season, City Football Group could drop three elite players on their doorstep and we could have the next young Hell Herrera and Matriza. And it wouldn't surprise me, but where they sit right now, uh, there's no way you can say that they're as competitive as they were the last few years. No chance. Boom. Blake says no. Close the no. door. Is Max Morales still elite, though? I think so, yeah. I think he's you're probably not getting the minutes team. you're getting because that's one of the things that makes him elite is he's like a Nico Ladero, like plays every minute, does everything. I don't think he can do that anymore. And you've seen it the last two years. Right. But when he's on the field, he is still – I mean, I had to make a list of top number 10s. He was not top five. I think I had him six. Right, there's a height requirement for that, yeah. <laughs> you must right. be to, to enter this space. So, all right, golden boot winner. I don't know. Uh, nobody knows, but that's the I fun of it, right? I this question. <laughs> uh, do you guys have answers? Do you have I got to guess. I, I, I'm going to go, yeah, I'll jump right in. I, yeah. I, Joseph is coming back fierce. Joseph mm-hmm. is coming back fierce. And as soon as this drops and we get into the first or second week, it's gonna, I'm going to come back to this and people are going to tell me that I was stupid because he's going to get you know, either hurt again, you know, God forbid, or he's yeah. just Atlanta is going to look like, ter- like just terrible. So, uh, but I'm, I, I'm keeping the faith. You know, he, he was f- tremendous when he came in, you know, when Atlanta had their run in the beginning and even you know, into the next year after that, when they weren't so great, he still was able to put the team on his back. So hopefully after injury, he, he, can, uh, he can do the same. I hate to copy your answer, but I'm also I'm also going Joseph. Not only is not only is he going to win the Golden Boot, he's also going to win the Comeback Player of the Year award. Well, you have to if you come back from an ACL and win the Golden Boot. I think you're already given that award, which is a crazy award, by the way. It makes no sense. I don't know how to give it, but yeah, uh, if Joseph Martinez comes back and wins the Golden Boot, then he deserves it. I think he's the obvious pick, right? Um, and so it makes sense. In thinking about these things, I try and think about, well, who's going to play the most minutes, right? So who has national team stuff? Who has depth? Um, what teams are going to go for things? Because you don't want to say the guy whose coach doesn't care about supporter shield as much and is focused towards the playoffs who gets rested uh, at times. So it's kind of hard to zero in on one. Um, for example, I think Giassi Zari is going to Gold Cup. If he didn't, I think there's a decent chance with the creativity around him that he could be in there. Raul Ruiz Diaz, he's going to Copa America. Otherwise, I think there's a decent chance he could be in there. And Lucas Cavallini as well. I know he's had a tough start, um, and he missed some sitters against Bermuda, but then crushed the Cayman Islands, which looked like a high school soccer game. So we know he could potentially compete for state championships, but I don't know if that's MLS Cup. Uh, But all those guys are going to be an international. So I think it's pretty tough. I think Joseph Martinez is the oddly safe bet, even though he's coming off an ACL tear. So should we make it three for three, or is that just like curse him too much? All right, I'll go with the secondary then. I'm going to go with Vela. I'm going with Vela. Another comeback player then, Another right? comeback player. Or does player. he not get comeback because he came back last year? Yeah, he, he, he's – when you perform the way that he did the year before, last year, I mean, he, he, last year it's was – It's a comeback? Was a, yeah, it's a comeback. I'm, I'm going to no give him, I'm saying Pato. Give I'm surprised we haven't had more Pato votes in here. Nah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I would love to see that. I mean, who wouldn't, right? Uh, uh, I'll give you a quote-unquote sleeper. 
I think I think Higuain's going to score 15 plus goals. God, this I year. hope so. I really do hope that Inter Miami is good. I really do. Yeah, I the one thing about him is I think he's going to be more like what Rooney was for DC, where it's like he actually drops in and creates a bit. And so maybe his quarter, his goal number is not as high as it could be, but I think he's going to be effective. And he's not, you know, he's not playing for Argentina anymore. So he's going to be around the whole year. So I'm going to throw him in there as well. What about Chicharito? Oh, that's another hot take. <laughs> I'm here for it. I'm here for the resurgence of Chicharito. I, as I said at the beginning of the show, I love the U.S. national team. That's kind of how I got into soccer. I respect, I love Liga MX. I watch it religiously. I have the entire time I've watched soccer. I respect the Mexican national team and Mexico fans, but I hate them. And so I've never liked Chicharito <laughs> before he came to this league. I respect the hell out of him and what he does. And he's elite at the things he's good at. He'll bounce back this year and he'll be fine. Um, no one was going to get it right last year in that scenario of like, oh, move to this country and then it's going to shut down. And then we're going to have a terrible coach. But don't worry, we're going to send you to this tournament at Disney World in the middle of the summer after you've not worked out and playing 90-degree weather at 11 a.m. and you'll kill it. No one was going to succeed in that scenarios, and that doesn't take away from the people who did. It was awesome. So he'll be fine, and he'll be good this year. I look forward to seeing his name on the score sheet more often. But we've talked about a lot of veterans. Who do you think is set to be the next MLS youngster to make a move to Europe and why? Talk my language now. You got to give me a number limit on this one because I got 80 people to go through. No chance. Blake just put up three fingers, which means 30. (laughs) So I'm going to start rolling through them. Just go through. (laughs) So we can't say Caden Clark because it sounds like it's already done. Um, So three that stand out pretty quickly. And I think the way their contracts got structured this year shows you that the clubs think so as well. Sam Vines, James Sands, and Matt Turner. They were all signed to be sold when they're ready to be. And I I think all three of them are not going to be, when you invite me back next year for the preseason preview, lock it in. Um, They're not going to be in this league anymore. I'll put Cole Bassett in that list as well. I think Cole Bassett's going to crush it this year. That role, that like highly active eight slash 10 slash, you know, second forward, I think is going to be awesome for him. And we've already heard the rumors and all that just makes sense uh, for him to get over to Europe. So all of those to me are like, Shoe-in, guys. Uh, the two that we have to mention, because Atiba Hutchinson apparently is captain of Besiktas, captain of Canada, also runs player acquisitions for Besiktas and player development for Canada, is Richard Luray and Michael Baldissimo. Apparently, he's told Besiktas to buy them both. Worked out with Kyle Lahren, so I think they might listen to him. Uh, so those two have to get mentioned. And then I think we've heard the rumors around Aaron Herrera. Where RSL's at right now, if they get a legit offer, you got to let him go. And for him, I love Aaron Herrera. I think he's a great player. He's a gamer. I want him in my teams. He's got to look at that right back depth chart and say, I probably have to try and challenge myself if I'm going to get in that conversation for the U.S. national team, just because I think it's the deepest position we have. So that's a bunch of them. Um, I'll give you one off the radar, which is Justin Che. I don't know if it's a name people are familiar with. FC Dallas Academy kid. They all go to Bayern Munich every offseason. Bayern's asked them to stay. Apparently he's got a German passport. So it feels like he's the next Chris Richards and he's never even going to play in MLS, but he'll be an MLS signing, quote unquote, in Europe. Another guy that's under the radar that I've seen has been linked to a move maybe to Italy, I believe it was, Anthony Fontana, homegrown out of Philly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, goal scorer. Um, With him, 
everything I've seen is the thing he does well is score goals. And so it's hard to see that he's a great player until that moment. So he needs minutes to score to show that he can get there. And I think that's kind of what it's going to be. But, you know, I work with people who have trained with him. I work with people who coached him or I'm friends with people that have. Everyone loves him and speaks really highly of him. And the way Philly has lined up in this offseason, he is the replacement for Brendan Aronson. And so he's going to get a ton of opportunities. And I think you're right. If he's in double-digit goals come this summer, there's a really good chance that he gets a move. All right. <laughs> Underrated players to watch this season. From any team, young guys, anyone? Just what's the first thing that comes to your head when you hear that sentence, that question? So I, so I think I already said Higuain. I don't know if he counts as underrated. Right. Um, and I mentioned Cavallini, who I think is going to score a ton of goals uh, for Vancouver and what they can do. Um, so I think those are two that stand out. I think when you talk about impact, maybe even rehabbing your image a little, I think Tim Parker is going to have a good year. He's going to change things for Houston. And a few years ago, it was like, this guy's going to be a stud in MLS for a while, maybe borderline national team. A lot of that went away. Uh, so I think he turns it around and has a pretty good year uh, for Houston. And I think that's a big pickup. And I think you've seen a couple moves inside of MLS. That'll be interesting. Like a Michael Barrios in Colorado, that's a dude who can pour in a few goals off the wing. And it's just a smart move for them. Um, I think there's a couple intra MLS moves that could end up pretty interesting for those players. One person I have down here is Georgie Mihailovic to Montreal. It has to be for him, right? Like, it's not his fault. I don't think you could even say it went wrong for him at Chicago. They got a great offer. He's not really in the plans to be a factor. But you got sent away from your homegrown team when you're breaking into the national team. Like, where does he stand right now? And if it goes poorly in Montreal, then you're starting to become like a journeyman type situation. So it needs to be. And for Montreal, it needs to be. They're a fascinating team. I'm not – I got to be honest. I have them last in these, so I guess I'm down on them. Uh, but when I was texting with a friend from Montreal, and he asked why. I said, I can tell you how the teams around them got better. Can you tell me how they got better? And right now, it's hard to say. The thing I've said a few times this offseason is they could be like a college soccer scrappy team, young guys playing together with something to prove, don't know better. And Wilfred Nance, I think, can tap into that. And so they could be really fun and entertaining and maybe, you know, trending upward over the course of the year or into next year. But uh, it's tough to see that team be good unless Mason Toy is an elite, you know, a legit center forward. And Georgie Mihailovic is a legit attacking mid. And Kamal Miller is a lockdown center back. And Zach Brogiard is an elite attacking right back. All of that could happen because that's how player development works. You just need all of it to hit. The only other player that I really want to point out is Corey Baird under Bob Bradley. Mm, that's a great one. He's going he's gonna to love life. He went from a club that was irrelevant starting the third week of the season to he is the plaything of the best coach in the league who has done wonders with players with a quarter of his ability. So, yeah, I agree with you. I think for him to be able to play all three spots across the front line, um, and to fit in and be able to stretch the line and score goals when he gets in opportunities. This was one of those trades where it happened and you know he was smiling. Like you know how excited he, he is when you watch it go through. Um, and so I think that's a great shout. And again, this is a cool part of MLS where it's like you're starting to get enough talent in this league that the player doesn't fit on your team, but he can fit on my team. And that doesn't mean I, you know, I stole him from you or you guys messed up. It's just 
that's the reality in sports sometimes. And MLS wasn't there yet where there was enough talent to distribute it in different places. And now you're starting to get there where you can have a guy like that who I think he would start for RSL, but I don't think he would change the, the course of the season for them. So it makes sense for them to take the money and send him to LA. If I'm Corey Baird, I'm like, man, I get to play with Diego Rossi, Carlos Vela, Edward Atuesta, and Mark Anthony K. Hell yeah, brother. Get me, a, <laughs> get me a ticket out of RSL ASAP. You probably drove. Just got in a car, didn't even know the direction, and just started going. I'm hitchhiking if that's all I got to get there. <laughs> but moving on, is this finally the year an MLS club wins CCL? If so, which of the clubs is best set up to run the table? The answer to this question every year is yes. It is always yes. So that's number one. I love CCL. Uh, it's, part of the, it's one of the things that I like really fell in love with early in MLS days. I root for every MLS team, so it's easy for me. I turn on the game, I already know who I'm rooting for. Um, the draw doesn't set up for it, but this Columbus team is one of the best teams we've ever put into CCL. And it's not a coincidence. That management group from Tim Bezbachenko down, they've been here, they know what it takes, they want it bad. They still remember Guadalajara. They still remember what happened with Toronto. Uh, and so they built a team to be able to win CCL. It's not, oh, we want, like, sometimes we've seen in Seattle, well, our goal is MLS Cup, but we'd love to win CCL. No, this team wants to win this. And so they, have, they got the hardest draw of any MLS team, but it's CCL. It doesn't matter. You got to beat two Liga MX teams probably to win this thing. You got to do it at some point. And so... It falls on their shoulders. They're the only one I think realistically has a chance. I think there's a pretty good chance the other MLS teams go out in the opening round. And we, you know, one of the reactions to the Olympic qualifying has been, well, we disrespect Honduras. Well, Aloualense is a legit team out of Costa Rica. And so uh, I think when you look at the second round, Columbus might be the only one left, but I think they can win the whole thing. It's great news being that I'm a crew fan. Phenomenal. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> I also normally am wrong. As I said, I pick with my heart. So, uh, so you never know. I do the same thing. I do the same thing. So last, before we move on to some of our final questions, um, this is a hard one. This is kind of like the, the golden boot winner, but who do you have as your prediction to make the MLS cup final and win? Well, you're asking me to curse two teams right now, early in the season. That seems kind of <laughs> rough for me. Uh, I'll go with the Portland Timbers. Uh, and I'm not going to say them to win Sporter Shield because Blanco has to come back healthy and Nishkoda has to come back. They've got national team guys as well who might miss. But this looks like a team that's going to win in the playoffs. And they're going to be home and hopefully with fans and hopefully jumping. Uh, and they're just experienced and they're quality and they're deep. So I'm going to say Portland from the West. And it's hard to get away from Columbus. I think they're, they're the elite team right now in MLS. And the thing about them, they proved last year they could do it without some key pieces. And then they got deeper. I mean, you could legitimately roll Columbus out right now in a playoff game, take away their starting center forward and two of their best attacking players. And they may have the better starting lineup than the team they're facing off against, which you just stuff you've never really been able to say in MLS history before. And remember, one of the, I mean, you guys, I don't have to remind you because you know, but one of the things we don't talk about is Vito Warmgore was supposed to be the starter last year, missed basically the entire year. So they got deeper at center back without even making an acquisition. Just keep, just keep talking about it. <laughs> just keep telling me more. Music to so, my ears. 
<laughs> so in our last podcast, we spoke with a member of Nordeca, the official supporters group of the Columbus crew. And a question that I posed was, Josh Williams and Jonathan Mensa were a phenomenal partnership after week two when Vito Warmgore went down. Who is your week one starter if you're the Columbus crew? Do you stick with Josh or do you go with Vito, who feels like a new acquisition at this point? If Vito's healthy and playing at the level that Caleb and Tim Bezbachenko saw and Pat Allen said when they brought him in, I think he's the starter. Because this is an opportunity to say, this is our ceiling that we think we can get to week one. And if he doesn't perform, then you can bring Josh Williams back in. But I think if Vito Wongo is healthy, especially after the work he's had to put in to get back, you want to kind of give him that reward and that opportunity. Josh Williams is a fascinating one. Like, he started so many big games in his career. But if he's your starter, you're, on, you know, you're not happy. Going into a year, you don't want him to be your starter. Mm-hmm. But you're not going to lose a big game because he is your starter. And that's just his reality, and he, he knows that as well as anyone. But I think you still – you have that opportunity week one if, if Vito's healthy to say this is the group we think we are. Yep, I agree. So, opening day of the 26th season of MLS play starts on Friday, April the 14th. The three opening weeks of MLS regular season play hold an increased level of importance this year as the top eight MLS teams in points per game through the first three weeks will qualify for the U.S. Open Cup. Which week one matchups are you excited to watch and why? Well, all of them for starters, because I'm just <laughs> ready to get this thing going. And I love how spaced out it is. So you really can. Um, MLS week one, before I worked at MLS, and even since I have, uh, there was like the direct TV kick package and it's free week one. So it was the only week I could go to any bar and watch a ton of MLS. So I just like pick a bar where I knew the bartenders, pick a corner TV and just, roll through games i can remember watching vancouver and nigel real coker winners and all that stuff and being in a bar at 2 a.m in boston doing whatever i want so i love week one um, i think it's going to be great one of the low-key ones maybe you'd even know better than me is um i think it's nashville fc cincinnati which they had good usl matchups and they're uh, the closest or as close as you can be regional rivals for nashville um, which is kind of a cool, low-key rivalry that they never played last year because the year was so weird. Uh, so I'm, I'm a little bit excited about that one. Obviously, Atlanta, Orlando, Joseph returns against them. You don't know what CCL is going to look like, but you know that that's the first game for them. Like, you, they'd love to win CCL. They'd love to compete. But for them, that's, that's the starting point of the season. And obviously, all the things with Joseph and what he's done and all those things um, – you know, the way he's spoken about Orlando in the past. I don't really know how to describe it. He makes them his B word. And uh, yes, so I think those are two of the big ones that stand out to me uh, to start. And then your Columbus team, they're doing a little, uh, what do we call it? Um, We're going to make up a cup name. It's the Community Shield. That's what they do over in England. And that's essentially what we're doing here. And I think we should do it every year. I'm here for that. Okay. We're going to call it the community shield. I don't know what the community is. I don't know whose shield it is. We don't have crests. We don't have shields. My family doesn't have a shield uh, in the U.S., but fine. You can call it that. Oh, that isn't what I want to call it. I was just comparing it to the community shield yes. that they do over in England. Yeah. That is exactly what it is. Before we close it out with you, David, we're going to get into a little mailbag. And oh. some of the Mike questions- D's mailbag. Mike D's mailbag, mailbag. <laughs> <laughs> so we went to Twitter, obviously, and, and asked some of our followers to shout out some questions for, for you, David. And 
Uh, we got a couple of responses, and so here we go. Well, the first is from at Solon, and I might be butchering that, at Solon TLG. Question is, is seven teams making the playoffs the optimal amount going forward? Uh, it's interesting because I think a year ago it was seven, and then obviously COVID happens and it was more, and it felt like more of a um, U-turn when it happened. Like, I felt like everyone reacted more this year than they did last year when we found out it was seven. I think it's the right amount of teams for you want enough teams to have something to compete for, but you also don't want to reward everyone. And so I think you're, this is probably the right space. The question is with that, is it still one leg? It gives a really big advantage to the home team, but is it even a big enough advantage? Um, and the buy, obviously, for the first seed, all of that stuff's really hard, but I think seven teams is the right amount. Although, as I said at the beginning of the show, they keep adding teams. So maybe you have to expand right. that at some point. Right, right. Does, I mean, do we keep it at seven teams and we have 40 teams in the league? I mean, uh... exactly. Then it's competitive. <laughs> then yeah. it's one of the most yeah. prestigious things you could do. Right. I mean, I mean, still at this point, over 50% of your teams are making the MLS playoffs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But at the same time, yeah, 100%. But also like, what, 10 NBA teams are going to get in this year? Even when it was eight, it was still half the league or borderline half the league, but that's kind of the way we do things. And I'm not against that, but I think you do need to make it more competitive to get in. And part of that, I think, is like decision day and stuff makes, you know, it's like additional playoff weekends. Okay, moving on to second question. We have a total of four. So we went through one, we're going to two, and then we have two more there. So for all of you out there listening that can't do math, I'll keep my here stamina. we go. All right. <laughs> At Dummy Run Pod, question is, how many goals slash assists does Reynoso end up with this season? So combo? Seems like a, it seems like you just I, – I mean, and I get it. These questions are just tough for you. Yeah, I know. Because <laughs> I love everything and everyone. I want to say good things for everyone, but I don't know. Right. Um, for Reynoso, I think he's going to crush it this year. So I'm going to say 19, 19 and a half over. So I think it's, we're talking 12 to 15 assists this year and somewhere around 10 goals. All right. Um, and that's including, I don't know who the center forward is, but if it's Foster Langsdorf, damn, Foster Langsdorf's going to have a career year for sure. <laughs> All right, third question. Here we go. Before, before we move on, is producer Anders messaging you yet, telling you it's bedtime? Because we've been going at this thing for a long time. I know. I talk really long. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> no, no it's, okay. it's good. If anything, we're more concerned with keeping you. We could talk with you, I'm sure, you know, all night long. But uh, anyway, we have two left, and then we'll let you go. So the next one is uh, from at Coach Rock HRO. Does DK come back from loan? I felt that this was a yes even up to a few weeks ago because um, I thought Orlando had an idea of the way they wanted to handle this, but with the way he's performed, it almost feels like it would be irresponsible to let him play in MLS with the value that he's acquired for them as a club. And it's too bad. I love Daryl DK. Every time we're doing a rundown and we're trying to think of something and it's like, well, we, you know, we did special jet. What players do we want to ask him about, you know, get to know a little bit more about them. And it's like we both look at each other and we're both kind of at the same time. We're like, no, we shouldn't ask again about Daryl DK. Like, I love Daryl DK as a person and as a player. I'm really excited for him. But it just feels like if you're going to get $10 million plus for him, what are you going to do? Roll him out for a month and a half and give him an opportunity to play in an MLS and then sell him? 
Um, so it just makes sense that it, it works for everyone to let him go. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I'd love to see him play more, you know, and, and just absolutely crush it in the MLS. But then, hey, I'd love pick, to see him pick crush the U.S., Daryl. Go yeah. there, pick the U.S., do your thing. If you don't and you pick Nigeria, I'm going to root for you anyway on Nigeria, so I can't really threaten you with much, but uh, do it, Daryl, do it. <laughs> absolutely. So that question came from one of our, our buddies, uh, Dakota Rock, and our final question comes from another one of our friends, Matt Takis, at Matt Takis1. Favorite food at an MLS stadium? I know this is a good question for you. <laughs> yeah, it is a really good question for me. Um, wow. Did not expect a hard hitter right there. We had to, we had will, to finish strong. Yeah, you did. Sometimes I don't get to eat at games because I'm working a lot of the time. So I don't eat the things in the stadium. I eat around the stadium um, a lot. And I can give records for that as well. But probably DC United. So they have um, Chef Jose Andres. I don't know if I said that right. Famous, yeah, famous yeah, yeah. Spanish chef. Um, and he runs a great nonprofit that makes food in disaster areas all over the world. He's kind of curated their thing. And while I'm a hummus fanatic, my second favorite thing is pupusas. And they make pupusas because DC has the largest El Salvadoran population in the United States. And pupusas are phenomenal, beans and cheese. So I'm going to say DC United. And when I went down to to go to the opener of Audi Field, they did the whole like eat everything. I don't can't remember what anything was, but I know I enjoyed it. So that was your favorite food at an MLS stadium. What is the best stadium experience in the MLS that you have experienced? The one thing that I will put up as elite in this league against any league in the world is in stadium atmosphere. And you can go to, I'm not just talking about, yeah, everyone loves the Portland Timbers games. Portland Timbers are awesome. Have you ever been to a Philly game when they're good and it's competitive? That place bounces. If you go to New England, when they get a crowd in there, uh, when they won the Eastern Conference Championship back in 2015, I think it was, 2014, whatever the year it was, I used to, when I went to college there, they'd push hard one or two games and get 30, 35. That place was awesome as well. So I just think MLS, that's, it's obviously sucked for a year now because we don't have fans and fingers crossed we're, you know, getting close towards the end of this year safely and everyone gets done what they need to get done. But that's just the one thing about this league that's awesome. And it's awesome how unique each one is and so you've got different styles different chants different fan groups that are trying to you know do different things in every market um i don't think there is a number one atmosphere and i can say like there's games i've been to everywhere where i'm like man this is awesome uh, but i'm really excited to see what happens this year the three new stadiums are going to be pretty epic you've mentioned columbus FC Cincinnati looks legit. Austin looks wild. I have a couple of friends that are working down there for Austin FC. They're super excited. Um, Red Bull Arena is still one of the great facilities. Sporting KC is epic. So hey, I don't know hey, if I have a good and, answer. And Red Bull Arena is hosting two New York teams. Yeah, there you go. But don't tell them that because they would never go to New Jersey. They're such <laughs> New Yorkers born and bred. I, All I will right. say this one thing, one thing. When the LAFC fans bounce as a section, I was at an LAFC game with someone who was from overseas. And you look up and the entire section is moving together. And you don't, can't tell it's moving at first because it's so together and like in your face. And I just remember this person going, wow, I've never seen anything like that. Uh, not saying it's the best atmosphere. There are a lot of great atmospheres in MLS, but it's pretty damn good. 
Mike, dude, we got to get out there, man. We got to go see some new stadiums. Got to. Got to do it. Got to. <laughs> All right, yeah, Dave. Yeah. So before we close this out, Dave, do you have any final thoughts for us? No, just watch a lot of MLS, everyone. Uh, <laughs> enjoy the league. We enjoy it. Uh, if you listen to Extra Time or any of the other stuff I do, send questions, comments, challenge us. We love to hear that. Um, I watch most of what's going on, so I'm on. So feel free to reach out and talk about it. And uh, as I told you guys, I love the community that is around this sport, uh, especially in this league. I just think it's small enough to feel familiar, but also big enough to have unique ideas. And I think everyone can find, kind of find their space in it. Uh, and hopefully it's a better year and we uh, all get together for a game at some point, drink some beers, play a little pickup, and then go to an MLS game. I'd love that. Yeah, David, I, I don't have anything else other than just to say thank you so much for, for coming on. Uh, some, something that we've learned in, in the short time that we've been a part of the podcast game is how friendly um, some of the personalities and, and some of the players um, that are associated with this league and that are a part of the league um, have been, you know, something that you wouldn't ever anticipate coming into it. You know, you, you think of it as these like stars, but, you know, everybody has been so kind, you know, especially yourself. So thank you very much. We really do appreciate it. My pleasure. Anytime. David and we'll get Goss. you on next week or not next week, next year for the preseason yeah. talk next year as well. So lock it in. Lock it in. Although if my picks go really poorly, then schedule me for the postseason first <laughs> show and then I'll do the reaction to the things that happen. You right. can't go wrong with that. Deal. All right. Well, David, thank you so much for joining MLS Gone Wild. Listeners, thank you for tuning in to season three, episode seven featuring Extra Time co-host David Goss. Ladies and gentlemen, the 26th MLS season is two weeks away. Until then, be good to each other, but stay a little wild. Peace. We'll talk to you all soon.